Hills and Valleys is a podcast that uncovers stories from leaders in healthcare, tech, and everything in between. Straight from the heart of Silicon Valley, we give you a look at the good, the bad, and the future, one episode at a time. Brought to you by Petro Medical. Hi everyone, Omar M. Khatib, Director of Growth at Petro Medical. Now, this episode of Hills and Valleys, we cover a very controversial topic and a very sensitive one. There's this invisible battle that's going on day by day between a physician's search for a fulfilling career in medicine and the hidden forces of physician burnout. See, according to a recent Harvard report, physician burnout is a public health crisis that urgently demands action. Over half of all doctors report troubling symptoms like depression, exhaustion, dissatisfaction, and a sense of failure. And these physicians are not only twice as likely to commit a serious medical error, but they're also at higher risk when it comes to suicide, alcohol and drug abuse, and a variety of different things. And these people are putting their lives on the line on a daily basis to do what they can to help patients while putting themselves at risk. Now we had the fortune of catching up with a physician who's not only well-versed and educated about this topic, but is also part of a program who's doing something about this. So Dr. Susan Martinelli is a professor of anesthesiology at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, and her clinical specialty is cardiothoracic anesthesiology. She's very passionate about resident education and serves as the associate residency program director. Now, along with physician well-being, she also has research interests that include the flipped classroom in residency education, which includes family and friends uh, being worked into the wellness program. Now, you can follow her on Twitter, and I'll leave that in the show notes below, at Dr. Susie UNC, that's D-R-S-U-S-I-E-U-N-C. Now, without further ado, here's our episode with Dr. Susan Martinelli. are in Chicago for the Society of Cardiac Anesthesiology and got a chance to catch up with Dr. Susan Martinelli right after her panel discussion. Doctor, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Absolutely, absolutely. So the panel that you were on, you, you had a talk beforehand. Can you share the, the title of that talk? I don't remember the exact title, but it was essentially looking at burnout in um, cardiac anesthesiologists specifically, but more general in physicians as a whole. Interesting, interesting. I definitely want to talk, you know, ask you more about that. But before we do, you know, sort of a traditional show is we like to ask physicians, what, what, you know, what got you in, into medicine? And if you can go back to is where you grew up in undergrad, you know, walk us through that. Okay, I grew up in Wisconsin, and my father was a physician, and I used to spend time with him um, doing rounds back in the days when you could, there were a lot of inpatients, he's an ENT surgeon, and I used to round with him at the hospital and see his patients in clinic and things with him, and even got to go into the operating room with him, and so um, I was always a science-minded person and really kind of took to that and knew that that's what I wanted to do essentially, and um, I went to undergrad at um, University of Wisconsin and medical school there as well with the thought that I was going to do ENT surgery because that's what I knew best because of what my father did. And at that time we had a mandatory anesthesia rotation in our third year and when I did that rotation uh, it clicked that this was, this was what it my job would be this is where I needed to go and so um, we were I was very fortunate that we had that opportunity as students 
And so I um, went into anesthesia. I did my residency at the University of North Carolina, and I did a cardiac anesthesia fellowship at Duke. And then I um, went back to UNC on faculty and have been there for 11 years now, which makes me sound really old. So you just couldn't deal with being at Duke after being at UNC firsthand, right? I love my, <laughs> I love my time at Duke. I have um, nothing bad to say. I When I went over there, I had already signed on for a job at um, UNC. So. Okay, very nice. very nice. So you said something clicked. Well, what was it specifically you know, that clicked, you think? I don't know. It just felt, it was this like, sort of instinctual like gut feeling that this was the right thing for me. This is where I wanted to be because when I looked at ENT stuff, there were things that I wasn't interested in, in the profession, and um, in anesthesia, I was like, it just, it just felt right, just seemed like it was, I, I don't know, it was just that sort of internal, like, sense that this is the, this is the right thing for me. Interesting, and you know, actually one of your, your co-panelists, Dr., uh, Dr. Perry, out of University of Minnesota, you know, we caught up with him yesterday, and he talked about this idea of, you know, the physicians utilizing more of their intuition. Um, you know, and I was listening to your panel earlier about physician burnout, and someone had mentioned that there's this sort of uh, martyrdom that comes along with it about how hard you worked mm -hmm. and everything. And, you know, it sounds like it's very ego-driven versus what we intuitively want to do. So for you, I mean, you've been working hard on uh, physician burnout and understanding it. What, what kind of things have you discovered? Well, I don't know that I've personally discovered them, but we know as a profession that burnout is a huge issue for physicians, and not only physicians, medical students as well, um, all the way through medical student training, all the way up to practice. And there have been reports that show in the physician population in the United States, at least, that burnout is almost at about 50%. Um, and so this is something that I think is becoming more recognized as an issue, which is fantastic. There's been more education on it. And then the next sort of step with it is how to combat it and how to foster wellness for our physicians and medical students. Mm -hmm. And so where do you start, like especially in terms of fostering wellness? I know that as, as someone who directs your, uh, your residency program, you have young residents who are working very hard to prove themselves. and wear it almost as a badge of honor, but this idea of wellness is important because you have to be able to take care of yourself versus, you know, Absolutely. before you take care of others, right? Yep. So where, where does this start in that education? It should start way before we get them. It should start in the beginning of medical school, and I think now it is. I think it's incorporated, I think it's required to be incorporated into medical school training. It certainly is a requirement for it to have it be part of residency training. Uh, but I think a huge start to it is education and to, we're all evidence-based thinkers and to show the evidence that this is a real problem and there's real consequences with it. So it's not just that you don't feel well as a human and as a physician, but there are real consequences that go along with it. There's higher rates of depression and anxiety. There's higher rates of suicidal ideation. There um, is poor patient outcomes. We've shown over and over again that physicians who are burned out have more medical errors. Um, it affects ourselves with substance abuse, suicide, all these things are all wrapped up and kind of surrounding around burnout. So if we can start that education process early and continue it on, if we can get buy-in from the stakeholders, our leadership, um, and then start to work on having this culture where we can talk about it and where we work to improve the overall wellness of our 
physicians, I think that's kind of the next step in how to make things better for our providers mm -hmm. and to recognize that and accept that this is an issue. Why, why this long? Why did it take until this year, you know, or at least in the last couple of years for this to really become uh, a topic of interest? I think it has been for a while. I, um, you know, we've there's been work done on this. Uh, one of the big studies that surveyed for prevalence of burnout and work life imbalance issues. The first um, survey from that was in 2011. So this is not a new topic. I think there's been more um, more recognition of it and I don't know if that's because there's more understanding that there are detrimental consequences because of, because of it or maybe it's because it's now mandated by places but it's not new and I don't think it's even in the duration where it's starting to be studied I don't suspect that that's when it started I suspect it's been happening and what hasn't been recognized or defined um, prior to that you know one thing you know not just in medicine but in anything when it comes to modifying behavior it's easy to always uh, talk about it but not only encouraging but sometimes forcing those behaviors to happen is where it becomes very tricky and you know with medical students and residents the idea of taking time for yourself uh, focusing on wellness is talked about but a lot of people don't do it so how, how have you been able to find ways to modify the behavior and change the perception of this with your residents I think our residents are have easily bought into this. I, I, I don't think they're the ones who need the shift in the mind frame. I think if anybody, it's the folks who have been around longer, don't accept it as a problem and think it's just, it's always been the way it is. And those may be the folks who think you're weak if you can't just keep working. And when you know, why would you need to leave the OR if you had a death in the OR? Just put your head down and keep going back to work. The, the folks with that mindset are not our residents and our medical students. And so I don't think there's much need of a push to tell them this is an issue and to try to work on it. I think they have bought in and they're open to, to modifications. Uh, and hopefully some of that's starting in medical school so when they come to us that's already sort of entrained in their thought process. Um, it is hard to implement though, right? Your residents are busy. They have not only their clinical work, they have exams that they're studying for, they have quality improvement projects they're working on, research projects they're working on, um, just overall studying and learning about what it is that we're doing. And so for them to find time to fit that in, um, that can be difficult. I, when I meet with them, I try to let them know that, you know, you, I suggest that you come up with a list of priorities that's outside of medicine and you rank them. And you may not have room in your schedule to do all of those things all the time, but you need to figure out what your highest priority is, whether that be spending time with your significant other, whether that be going to the gym, whether that be um, listening to music or playing music, whatever that is in your life that keeps you human, you need to figure out how you're going to fit that in. But you do recognize that you may not be able to do all five of those things, but you need to at least be doing the top one or two is my perspective hmm. Hmm. and you know you mentioned earlier that the residents you know are all open to this but sometimes depending on the program you might have the wrong person at the head who uh, doesn't agree with this type of uh, change in medicine I guess because you know some medicine is very conservative it's has a very uh, strong history and culture sometimes breaking or changing culture is very painful you know, what do you do about influencing 
your peers and colleagues who are the heads of residency programs, um, but feel that this wellness stuff is kind of you know kind of a joke, and you you know, and we all got through it before, so you just have to. Right. This is this is part of this is part of the training, you know. Uh, so I think the biggest thing is education, because again, we're all scientists at heart, and so if we can show the evidence that there are really consequences to this, there's financial consequences, there's consequences to patient safety, there's consequences to physician safety, if we can show the data that there are real issues here, there are real effects of this, then I think it's much easier for folks to kind of take that in and say, okay, yeah, we have to do something about this. I have to say that I am super fortunate because at my program, our leaders, our chairman is so supportive of this. He thinks it's a really important issue. And so we're very lucky that we have um, as, mu as much support as, as we could ask for for developing this programming and for helping our, our physicians. Fantastic. And do you feel that in terms of the adoption of, you know, um, wellness programs and this type of education, specifically for residents, do you feel that throughout the U.S. It's, it's, it varies like depending on the region or is this kind of the same across across the board? I don't know the answer to that. I haven't talked to folks specifically um, or seen any surveys or data that shows mm -hmm. if it's if it's site-specific. I w would guess that maybe some of the traditionally more hardcore malignant programs maybe would have a harder time adopting some of this than others, but that would only be speculation. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, you mentioned a lot of evidence and data was shown. Can you, can you walk us through some of, some of that evidence? Like what, what was being seen in, in, in training programs that made people say, you know what, we, we really have a problem here and we need, to, we need to address this? It's not specific to training programs. I think some of it is there are certain like validated scales that measure burnout. The Maslock burnout inventory is one of them. There's scales that measure depression. Um, and you can simply ask about suicidal ideation. So you can, with surveying residents and um, in practicing physicians, you can get a sense of the scope of the issue from that. Um, but then for one of the, I think the hardest hit is that the folks who are more burned out tend to have more medical errors. And this has been shown over and over again. And a lot of these are um, are self-reported um, or the my perspective I've had a medical error versus something that can be audited. I've only seen one study that looked at pediatric residents that had audited medication errors and they were linked to residents who had a higher rate of depression. But other than that, it's been shown in internal medicine residents multiple times over. It's been shown in anesthesiology residents. It's been shown in um, practicing surgeons that those physicians who are burned out have more self-reported medication errors or medical errors. Mm -hmm. There was a study that was done on physicians overall in all specialties across the United States. And those who were burned out, those who had significant fatigue, and those who had had recent suicidal ideation had significantly more self-reported major medical errors. What 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 makes a resident depressed? And that I'm sure that it's a multivariate problem. There's a lot of different answers. But in your opinion, you know, in and your experience, what what usually tips off residents to be depressed and and suicidal? I don't have the answer to that. I think um, you know depression is a 
is a medical disease process. And so, you know, some of it is biochemical, I think, and some of it I'm sure is situational. And um, unfortunately, our residents go through situational life events that are very difficult in the midst of this also very difficult time in your life for training. But I have, um, I think it's very individually based and, and I'm not a psychiatrist so I don't, I, I don't know that I can really answer what would make a resident depressed. I can tell you things that I think contribute to burnout. Yes, please, in, yes. Um, in the physician population and not necessarily residents but just overall. Um, as physicians we have and as anesthesiologists specifically, we see high acuity patients. We see folks who are so sick. Um, there are some folks don't do well, and there's this, I think, societal belief that when you go to the doctor, when you have surgery, you're gonna have a good outcome, and that's not always the case. And it doesn't mean that something was done wrong or there was a mistake made, but not everybody has a good outcome, and that's really hard to manage. Um, and people make mistakes. We're all humans, and so there are medication errors, there are mistakes, and sometimes our mistakes harm people, and that's a really heavy burden to carry. Um, we have little control over our schedule, even more so from a resident standpoint. Um, we, the idea of being respected and appreciated for what we do is not as prevalent in the field of anesthesiology as it is for and my mind and my belief for surgery or medicine because when you come to us as anesthesiologists you don't know who we are you didn't come because of me you came because of the surgeon and I'm just kind of there um, and generally speaking people don't know what we do to appreciate what we do mm -hmm. um, and then there's all the maintenance of certification for practicing physicians and for residents the obtaining certification and for medical students getting into the residency and so there's all these other sort of things that um, paperwork and, and um, bureaucratic kind of things that go along with it too. Interesting. Yeah and you know um, you, you make a very good point that at least you know for example in the OR it's usually the, the surgeon's sort of the poster child for what's happening mm -hmm. but you know I was speaking with uh, uh, Dr. Perry the other day and he made a good point that anesthesiologists are one of the few physicians in the hospital where literally you guys span all across the hospital for all Absolutely. kinds of procedures and uh, Dr. Gordon Morewood actually who's uh, very interested in the business model of healthcare mentioned that anesthesiologists are probably the best people to really observe and start move, helping healthcare move away from fee-for-service to essentially producing like the final product that people pay for because they observe all the systems and processes in the hospital. Um, so for you, in your, in your training as an anesthesiologist, you were in a variety of different procedures, different departments. What was it about cardiac anesthesiology that got you to go into? Because it's a very interesting and niche area. Some of the same things that probably lead to more burnout in, in the area. The ability or the training that I could take care of the sickest of the sick patients was very appealing to me because as a trainee those were some of the most intimidating patient encounters when folks who come on multiple um, pressers and intubated on these mechanical devices that are supporting them and keeping them alive and all of a sudden they're my responsibility and so to have uh, extra training and knowledge and support and comfort in taking care of that patient population um, was very appealing to me. Um, the surgeries that we participate in, the 
procedural skills that we participate in are, um, I think, kind of keep it going. There's this great back and forth between a cardiac surgeon and a cardiac anesthesiologist because there has to be really good communication in order to be successful. Um, it's certainly a high adrenaline kind of an environment a lot of times, and, um, and I guess I find that appealing most days. Yeah, no, I mean, I, 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 can, I can appreciate what you're describing. I, I got to uh, spend some time in, uh, in some cardiac cases, and, you know, I've been in a lot of surgeries before, but being in a cardiac case is like something I've never seen. I mean, first, walking in, I have to, I'm keeping my head down to make sure I don't trip over anything, and I also have to look up so I don't hit anything with my head, but I likened it very much to, like, a grand symphony because you have the perfusion team, you have the anesthesiologists, the, the, the surgeons. It, it's, it's really quite a unique environment. Um, what are some keys to being successful in an environment like that for a young anesthesiologist getting started? I think it's huge to have foster teamwork and relationships with the folks that you're working with. Um, and that's sometimes hard for residents who rotate through for a month to come into that environment when everybody else kind of knows each other and knows how each other works. But I think that's one of the things that makes it successful, that you're empowered to speak up when you have a concern, that you have this like continual dialogue with per the perfusionist, with the surgeon, with the nurses, and there's it, this back and forth and this trust of, of, your, of your team members. Mm -hmm. I think that's the biggest thing that um, helps us to be successful in that environment. Interesting. You mentioned, uh, I guess, being able to speak up and, you know, with this sort of old culture of medicine, very hierarchical one, uh, <coughs> for good reasons, and this idea of wellness coming into place, do you feel that residents will be empowered to be a little bit more brave and speak up and not, you know, sort of harbor, f you know, the fear of shame? when they do that? I hope so. Um, you know, we're, we work on that, and I think we have a pretty good culture for that at our institution. In addition, I try to role model that, um, role model for the residents that what we do is important and that we, our voice is just as important as everybody else's voice in the room, and that in order to keep your patient safe that you have to be participating in that. And I think our residents do a really good job with that. But we're also fortunate because we have a really good camaraderie in our room and a very good open teamwork. And and we don't have a surgeon who doesn't listen to what our thoughts are, and we, or you know the sort of old stereotypical surgeons who would be throwing something or yelling. We just don't we don't have that, and I think that's important. And I hope that where my residents end up, they don't have that environment and if they do I hope we gave them the strength and the courage to to use their voice and to st speak up for the patients I think they will absolutely as someone who who really has been pioneering this I guess in your in your with your residents and in your program and of course role modeling it um, you know in the last few years that you've been doing this have you learned anything about yourself have you learned anything that surprised you perhaps about the process and about uh, the program and residents that um, I feel like I've changed and grown a lot over my time as, as in, well, beyond being an attending as, as a resident and fellow as well. You know, like I have found my voice and, um, and stand up for myself, stand up for my patients, um, and have come down a little bit from that and also been able to step back and let other people um, say stuff that I don't agree with or pick, pick battles and... Um, 
I've come into, I think, I don't know if others would agree, but a little bit more patience with folks in a better ability to see other perspectives, I hope. Um, it's a, I think it's a never-ending learning process for all of us. Hmm. I don't know that that answered your question. No, no, it absolutely did. It absolutely did. So you said you know you you learned a lot about yourself and you grew. Did any did anything surprise you, or did anything um, sort of enlighten you in a way where you said, "Wow, I didn't I didn't know that." Well, I had certain mentors along the way that gave me tips to be able to try to um, make good decisions and and to to stand up, be strong, and, and you know hold, hold my spot. Um, but it's it's more or less been this like path that is easier to see looking back than when I was doing it. It's, it's always easier to connect the dots looking back, right? Yeah without like any major huge defining moments. I do think that when I became a mom that that allowed me to step back and put things into a better perspective. Um, whether that's right or wrong, good or bad, I don't know, but I think for me that that gave me a better sort of open-minded perspective on things in general. Mm -hmm. No, absolutely. Um, you know, I, I do want to get a little clinical with you and uh, you know, so for me uh, having spent more time in this in this industry, and also for 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 my company, where one of the things we focus on is acute kidney injury, and it's a this sort of a black box of a disease that not a lot of people know about, and up until recently. But I know that you authored a paper about acute renal failure. But can you can you share some, you know, some things about being a cardiac anesthesiologist in terms of how you look at the function of the kidney and how it affects your job? So. Um that paper was a long time ago. <laughs> I know, yeah, yeah, so don't worry about what, yeah, because um, I think it was back in tw 20, was 2009 or 10. Yeah, that I don't was remember things I, I wrote a, a year ago. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I can't tell you the specifics about that, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but um, acute kidney, kidney injury is a huge deal for us because we think about it and we talk about it with our patients when we put them on cardiopulmonary bypass because the bypass machine can affect, um, affect folks' kidneys. We do things to try to protect the kidneys when they're on bypass. Um, we um, look at, we have a lot of folks who are in renal failure when they come to us. And so we monitor urine output closely. Um, we speak with the perfusionist. The perfusionist sometimes will use ultrafiltration during, um, with the pump um, for our cases. Um, but I certainly am no expert on AKI by no any stretch. Aside from nephrology, like nobody is. And I don't even remember <laughs> learning about acute kidney injury in medical school. And then I saw the epidemiology behind it, and hundreds of thousands of people die from it. And I, was like, I said, how come we didn't, nobody really knew about this? And the best answer that I've been getting uh, from, from people was, well, if you can't really do anything about it, why, why really talk about it? Um, but fortunately, I guess, you know, more data and technology is coming out to hopefully provide support and understanding that. So for, for in for cardiac anesthesiologists, what are some of the ways that, that, that you, you know, try and monitor it? Because unfortunately, um, the old ways were, there was nothing that sort of captured data automatically or anything. So how, how do you best mo monitor it and what, how does that inform your decisions? I don't know that we have a, a great monitor. We monitor urine output in the operating room um, and we take that into account with uh, our d the general volume that we give to the patient. Um, if we are in a position where we can make those decisions, um, meaning that if patients aren't having a lot of blood loss or coagulopathy and we can decide how much fluid we need to give, um, 
as much in the non-cardiac ORs as in the cardiac ORs. You know, we, we use it along with our laboratory data to try to figure out how much more volume that we need to give as part of the picture. Mm -hmm. um, but I don't know that I'm going to be able to give you a whole lot beyond that. No, no, no. That's that's yeah. perfectly fine. And, you know, f at least, you know, for the uh, medical students and residents that are listening, for, for urine output, is it correct to look at it as a as a indicator, maybe a tip off of what's happening upstream with cardiac output? Maybe you know in the cardiac ORs, it's a lot more complex than that because we, for when we're on bypass, the perfusionists are a huge player in the amount of volume that we give, um, and so you know a lot of times in the cardiac ORs we have true cardiac output monitors, cardiac index, continuous cardiac output, cardiac index monitors and so we do look at that and use that in, in conjunction with transesophageal echocardiography to try to figure out the volume status of a patient but it's kind of this whole dance and game where it's not, um, it's a piece to the puzzle. Mm -hmm. In the cardiac ORs the actual urine output may be less of the piece than in some of the other rooms. In addition to that um, you know, sometimes when folks get some mannitol or Lasix or things like that, and it, it drastically affects, increases the amount of urine that we get, that's harder to use that um, as a, is a, you know, it's such a great indicator of where we are as far as volume status. But we look at the big picture. We, you know, talk with our perfusionists. We look at the heart in the field. We look at the volume status on the echo. We look at the cardiac output on our monitor, our pulse pressure, variation, and all those things come into play. There was uh, one physician, head of uh, cardiac anesthesiology uh, at a hospital, and I asked him, I said, you know, what, what are some of the things that usually keep a, a cardiac anesthesiologist up at night? Because I, I, I haven't had that much interaction up until this meeting with them. Yeah. And he, he mentioned, uh, he said, acute kidney injury, bleeding, and heart failure. Is that, is that, is that correct? Would that be the same, same for you, or, or is it, does it vary depending on the cases? Well, when you mean up at night, you mean like literally up at night, like doing cases, or what's concerning about a, um, the patients, what we worry about about the patient. Which, yeah, would you would your concern worry so about? So, if I'm thinking about like my cases for the next day, what I'm worried about, uh, bleeding is huge, coagulopathy is huge, um, function is huge as far as cardiac function ah, okay. is huge. Um, access and ability to obtain access in folks is um, sometimes is worrisome from my standpoint, especially folks who are have chronic um, kidney disease or hemodialysis. Those folks are notoriously more difficult to find lines for. Um, and then the sig significance of the case, if it's a redo case, um, that always is more concerning to me, a redo chest than a virgin chest. Um, but honestly, for me, the kidney injury is not on the top of my mm -hmm. worry list. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, the things you mentioned are pretty big already. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. You know, and, um, you know, the, this, uh, the SCA meeting has been really fantastic, great sessions. I, I've been really impressed with the the depth and volume of it. I think a lot of physicians who are not even cardiac anesthesiologists should consider attending this meeting. But uh, of the sessions you've been in, um, any any topics, any any sessions that really stood out to you that you enjoyed and learned a lot? Well, unfortunately, I came from another meeting, so I just got in um, yesterday and was only, the only thing that I really was able to attend was uh, um, 
the best abstracts because one of my residents got chosen for that. Oh, so, great. Uh, well, what, was, what was their abstract on? He, theirs was on doing um, erector spinae blocks for um, post-op pain for uh, sternotomies. And they were able to show that the folks who got the blocks, the ESP blocks, had a decreased requirement for narcotics than um, the than their peers. So I think it's um, it's interesting. I think it's gonna they're gonna keep working on it. And I th I th it, it may make a big difference for folks going forward. Absolutely, and definitely. I mean, the unfortunate things here in the U.S. You know, opioid narcotic use is mm -hmm. is a big problem. Absolutely. Um, and just the last month or so, you know, there have been a lot of uh, allegations and, and 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 trials going on with big pharma. And the use of these opioids yep. and narcotics when in reality you don't need much, you know. Yeah. Uh, so that's been really interesting. And then your panel today, how did how did that go? I hope it went well. Um, it it's seemed like the feedback was good. Uh, my part of it was to kind of give the what the problem is and the state of where we're at right now. And so went over some of the data and the evidence of why this is an issue and started to get in just briefly into ways to um, try to promote wellness and to combat burnout, but um, didn't have the opportunity to really talk about some of the stuff that we're, we're working on at UNC because that wasn't the goal of the panel. What, what are some of the things you guys are working on at UNC? One, one of the biggest things that I'm hopeful that will make a difference is um, we've been doing this family day program. Um, back in April 2017, we did it for our entire department, for all the clinicians. Um, that we brought family members, support persons essentially, so it could be best friend, sibling, significant other, um, parents, whoever is your support person in your life. And we actually for that one did a kids track and an adults track and we brought them in and did some different simulation experiences with them to give them a sense of what we did and I, I, um, I really enjoyed it. I was able to bring my kids and I think they got a lot out of it. Um, and. We got fantastic feedback from it, and so um, adjusted it a little bit for August of 2017, specifically for our new CA1 residents. And we had, it was adults only for that, but encouraged them to bring their support persons, and we taught the residents and the support persons together about wellness and burnout and substance abuse, about what resources we have at UNC. And then we did the simulation, um, the adult simulation track with them. And um, I th think it's going really well. I'm really excited about it. We're um, about to embark on a multi-institutional study with the, that CA1 program to hopefully demonstrate that we really are making a difference as far as decreasing burnout and improving wellness and communication for our residents. That's fantastic. And I think, um, you know, again, all residents are adults, but a lot of times changing behavior is hard. So the idea of bringing a spouse or a support person to educate them to look for the signs is incredibly helpful. Are you the first program to, to sort of do something like this? Because I, I haven't heard of this before. We're the first folks who have published on it. There was, um, the only thing we saw in the medical literature at all was something in like early in medical school that was an, an, an attempt at something like this, but um, nothing else that we've seen that has been published. Um, so, I, you know, I don't know, I, I know we have published a couple things and I've heard other people saying that they're doing it based on some of the stuff that we've done, which is, which is great, but um, the goals are both to teach about wellness and burnout and signs and things to be on the lookout for, but also to give this sort of common ground on what it is that we do to um, 
have for so our support persons have a better understanding because anesthesia is not something that the lay people understand I don't think really at all and so if you can build this foundation and give the scaffolding of what it is that we do then when you come home having had like a really awesome accomplishment or a really bad day and you want to have that conversation with your support person that they have some basis of what you're talking about interesting it's a goal anyway yeah and do you, do you feel like maybe you know part of the development of, of these wellness programs and curriculums is also finding ways to educate the people who are in the lives of these residents and physicians that maybe if the resident physician isn't strong enough or interested enough to recognize these signs that people around them who care about them could recognize them and help them help them get the help that they need. I think that the support persons will frequently be the first ones that recognize issues because especially for new residents who we maybe don't know as well you know it, it, it'd be hard it may be harder for us to pick up on some of the signs that might be more subtle but if there's changes at home or in those relationships and we've empowered those support people to reach out to us if they have concerns and hope, hoping that the intervention can occur much earlier. Well, fantastic. Well, you know, thank you for spending some time with us. And before we let you go, just a couple, couple more questions. One is, you know, for the physicians and medical professionals who are listening to this program, if they're interested to learn more about the wellness programs that, that UNC offers and maybe get some more, more information themselves, any resources or papers or, or, or sites you can point them to? For what we've do, we're doing, we did publish something in Curious. Um, I am happy to discuss with anybody if they want to reach out to me via email or whatever. We can have conversations. Um, and I'll leave the, your your contact information in the show notes. Um, other than that, I don't know of necessarily a specific site, um, but I think there's a lot of stuff going on, and people are. We need to share what we're doing so that it's easier to. Um, adapt other programming into into our institution so it would be great if there was some sort of more open forum but I think it's important to study this work and publish this work so that we can use evidence-based methods just like we would with anything else. Absolutely and then my final question you gave me a nice segue into is talking about an open forum I heard that you just got on Twitter. I right? just got on Twitter That's yesterday. That's fantastic. Thank you. It's a, it feels it's a big deal. Well right? I don't know I don't know how to use it yet. I, you will don't worry. Okay. Or, you know, the nephrologists are quite a group on Twitter. It, it's really unbelievable. Yeah. They, they have their own Twitter universe. Well, yeah. I probably will not be joining theirs. <laughs> but, and, and do you know, do you know your uh, Twitter handle off the top of your head? Yes. Yes. It's what is Dr. Susie UNC, and it's S-U-S-I-E. Perfect. I'll leave, I'll make sure to leave that in the show notes. Okay. Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hills and Valleys. If you haven't already, go ahead and hit that subscribe button on our podcast. That way you're notified of new episodes as they're released. And if you're not already, please go ahead and follow Potrero Medical on all our social platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And we'll see you next time.